0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're borrowing an episode from one of our sister podcasts, How I Found My Voice, to explore the life and career of one of the UK's best love entertainers, Graham Norton. Together with host Samira Ahmed, Graham tells us about his life growing up as a young gay man in County Cork, Ireland, to living with hippies in Los Angeles and becoming a household name in the UK. This episode was recorded on the 9th of November 2020, before Graham had publicly announced that he would be leaving BBC Radio 2 in December of that year.
2: It took me a while to kind of figure out who I was as a 40-year-old Because clearly I wasn't that guy I wasn't the guy in the big suits running up and down the stairs Kind of waving dildos around That just seemed really unseemly for some, <laughs> for a, a man over 40 In my 50s, I feel much more comfortable in my skin you can imagine. It's the most depressing book. (laughs) I mean, nothing good happened (laughs) in these stories. Everyone commits suicide or gets killed, gets beaten up, gets raped, gets sexually abused. As a young gay person, it was not encouraging. It just seemed like a very grim future. I mean, my dream job would be doing a radio show in the middle of the night where you go next caller and people tell you their problems and then other insomniacs ring up with advice and I always imagine I've got a dog in the studio with me asleep onto the desk.
3: Hello and welcome to a brand new series of How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and in this podcast I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? My guest today is the one and only Graham Norton. His primetime chat show, The Graham Norton Show on BBC One, draws the biggest names in show business, including the likes of Tom Cruise, Taylor Swift, George Clooney, Judi Dench and Stormzy. He spent his early life in County Cork in Ireland, but crossed the water to become one of the biggest names in British entertainment. He's won a whopping nine BAFTAs, has a Radio 2 show, is the face of the BBC's Eurovision coverage and is a best-selling and indeed award-winning novelist. Graham Norton, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Smell me.
3: <laughs> now, you often revisit Ireland in your fiction. So take me back to the County Cork you grew up in in what, the sort of mid to late 60s, early 70s. What was it like being mini graham
2: i don't remember enjoying it very much i mean i wasn't unhappy but there was a real sense that life was going on somewhere else you know television was my window to the world and and you know we got a lot of american television and british television Um, i mean there wasn't much tv anyway there was just one tv channel rt1 and i would watch that from when it started to when it finished what would you watch
3: what particular shows
2: whatever was on I mean, literally, I would watch programs in Irish. I cannot speak Irish. Uh, I would watch a show called Martin Market, which is literally, a, it was a bald man who people called Cow Jack, because that's funny. Uh, <laughs> he would tell us the price the cattle got that week, and there'd be a filmed report from one Mart, and the filmed report was a cow walking in a circle. I would, watch, I would watch that. <laughs>
3: Now, your mother says that the first significant performance of yours, she remembers, was your performance of I'm a Little Teapot with all the actions and getting amazing applause. What do you remember about that?
2: I don't really remember anything about that. I think my mother taught the girl guides or something, or maybe that was at school, at primary school. Oddly, I don't remember that. I remember being about a pie man. There was some song about a pie. And I remember having a nice long apron that I enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> I always liked dressing up. I think the kind of the, the performance, the showy off gene uh, was kind of strong with me as a child. I felt like when I was showing off, I felt kind of happier, you know, because I, I, lots of the things that kids do to gain approval or attention, um, I wasn't able to do, like playing sports or music or any of those things. I, I never learned an instrument, um, but I could, you know, I did a bit of mimicry. I did a bit of showing off. I I, I enjoyed making people laugh.
3: were there any books or music or films that you watched that had a big impact on you and helped you give you a sense of what you might like to be?
2: The TV show that I watched a lot was The Late Late Show, hosted by Gay Byrne.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's The Late Late Show. And here is your host, Gay (laughs) Byrne.
2: Thank you. He was an enormous influence in lots of ways that I didn't understand at the time. You know, I didn't understand that that was the job I was going to end up doing. Um, I thought I was going to be a guest. I thought I'd be one of the fabulous people, you know, walking on. And of course, it's only as you get older, you realize it's much better to be the host because you're on the show every week. (laughs) And there's a certain longevity to that role. Whereas, you know, guests, they come and go, you know, a guest that would have been amazing five years ago, now we don't want them. So it's, it's much more fickle <laughs> on the sofa, whereas the host chair tends to be more secure. I, I enjoyed listening to those guests and he got. Extraordinary people, you know, people I'd never heard of, uh, like Sammy Khan, you know, the, the lyricist Sammy Khan. Uh, he was on and just, and Gayburn loved music and he sat with him and Sammy Khan was at the piano just playing the songs that he'd written. And I remember, you know, it's kind of weird. I was a child, but I remember that. And I remember thinking, ooh, that's a really, that's a kind of a hidden world, but it's a connection to kind of, Glamour and America and all those things, and I, you know, and I remember enjoying that. Um, and now, as an adult, I kind of see that it, you know, as I say, Gay was the one who kind of influenced me.
3: Well, it's interesting because you know a lot of the things he he. Brought on, they discussed issues that were part of the social change going on in Ireland, and one could argue, in a way, you've been part of reflecting the social change in Britain, maybe even driving it a bit, especially with you were know, your first TV show in the early in the late nineties, kind of pushing at the boundaries in a different way, but definitely part of the kind of cultural change.
2: I suppose I think what we did was we uh, we were on a fringe, you know, Channel Four. It would still, uh, I think aim to be kind of alternative broadcasting and then every now and again they have a hit and and it's it's that's when you go kind of, oh actually the mainstream has come over there over there hasn't come into the mainstream um because you know our show on channel four was very out there it was very rude very risque and yet the people i met who watched the show weren't any of those things they were my parents they were my parents friends um they were watching that show and, it, and i don't quite know how that happened well see it's, it's yourself it's yourself and julie andrews and i don't know i've wrote, never seen this one but is it just me or is there something really disturbing about seeing julie andrews nipples so clearly <laughs> <laughs> Even you her, level yeah, yeah. yeah you're kind of like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> you think, ooh, it's sort of Mary pop out. <laughs> now, when I watch clips of that show, I'm sort of shocked by them. I, I, I can't quite believe we said and did the things we did. But at the time, everyone kind of went with it. Everyone just went, okay, <laughs> that's on television now. And for some reason, they weren't particularly offended by it or shocked by it.
3: Protestant in what's overwhelmingly a Catholic country. How did it affect your sense of yourself? It's interesting how many quite famous writers and entertainers who've come from Ireland do have a Protestant background.
2: Well, I think in that way that uh, actors and writers often have this thing—that sense of being other. Uh, Tim Luscombe, he was a director and he's a writer. Uh, he talked about growing up in Leeds and feeling like a foreigner in Leeds even though he wasn't that's where he was from but he he felt detached from it and that was to do with his sexuality and for me I had a kind of double whammy of feeling other uh, in the, the sexuality but also being a Protestant you know being a Protestant meant you didn't know the children who lived on your street because they went to a different school I would go off to the the grammar school and they would go to the convent or the Christian Brothers. I remember that was made very clear to me. We moved house once in the middle of a summer, so it was the summer holidays, and I played with all the kids in the street. And then come September, I never saw them again because suddenly everyone went, oh, oh, I see. He's not one of us. He's one of them. And not in a kind of... Sectarian way, I mean, clearly it was we were separated, but it it didn't it didn't feel it didn't feel good or bad, it just felt that's that's the way of the world i 'm not like those people because I go to this school.
3: you mentioned as well sort of the double whammy i don 't know when you became aware of your sexuality, but can I ask how that was growing up in Ireland?
2: Everybody comes to terms with those things in their own way um And I wonder if it ever gets easier. I mean, it must get easier for kids now. I I hope it does. But at the time, you know, you're aware of it. You're in denial about it. You know, all those little kind of guides to adolescence often say, oh, you might have a phase of, you know, fancying someone of the same sex. And, you know, and you can be quite old by the time you figure out this this phase has been going on some time now. Uh, And then you eventually have to own it. In a way, I suppose, you know, I think if you're a kid in a city or if you're a kid uh, living somewhere where you think you can explore that part of yourself, then you can come to terms come to terms with it earlier. For me, there was no outlet. You know, I was alone. It wasn't like I could meet somebody else gay. I knew there were gay people in the world. I remember buying a book called The Other Persuasion. And it was a kind of a anthology of gay writing. And I felt alright about buying it because, you know, it had E. M. Foster in it and, you know, Gore Vidal and Oscar Wilde and all you know, all these people were in it. So it felt literary rather than salacious. And well as you can imagine, it's the most depressing book I mean, nothing good happens in these stories. Everyone commits suicide or gets killed, gets beaten up, gets raped, gets sexually abused. It's just, it. Wh- whoever's idea it was, I'm sure it was well-intentioned kind of to put together what <laughs> gay writing, but as a young gay person, it was not encouraging. It just seemed like a very grim future. And so... And and similarly, when you watch movies or TV, there was very little to make you think, oh, yippee, I'm gay. (laughs) I get to have that life. Uh, That didn't really exist. So it was only really when I got to to London where I saw that actually there was a a perfectly uh, normal and happy uh, gay life to be had.
3: Well, tell me then about the move to London, because you had gone to university in Cork, hadn't you? Doing a very academic degree. Was it a French and... French, French and, and English. English. I
2: French and English. But you and didn't complete it. The first summer out of uh, out of Cork... So I went to university in Cork, loved it, had an absolute ball, and um, really felt like I found my tribe, all these pretentious young people kind of striding around Cork in outsized Macs <laughs> and kind of shiny second-hand <laughs> suits. And then... That summer, I made the mistake of going to Paris for a bit and then London for the rest of the summer. And I worked in a restaurant in London and it was a kind of, you know, uh, how are you going to keep them down in the farm after they've seen Paris? I just, <laughs> I, Cork didn't do it. I, I just felt, oh no, I, I want to be somewhere else. Uh, and, and yet Cork felt like an escape. It it felt like uh, my salvation, But after being to London, you thought, oh no, it it can be even better uh, than that. And so the next year, oddly, and again, who knows what was going on in my head, um, the next summer I ran away. But I think, I think in my head was that if I went to London, I'd have to come back. It seemed too close. So uh, that was when I got this J1 visa which the American government gave out. And I went off to, to America and, and worked there. In my head, knowing I was never going to go back to university. But of course, I never told my parents that. So when I did come back, <laughs> they sort of thought, oh, you're going back to university now. And I was like, oh, no, no. Is, this when, you, when you lived with,
3: is this when you lived with the hippies in San Francisco?
2: This is when I uh, fell in with the hippies.
3: You have to and, tell me about this.
2: Well, it was a, a place called Dance. I... I was not a hippie, but it was the one place where they had a a couple of rooms. They rented out as kind of hostel rooms and you could pay as you went, if you know what I mean. You didn't have to come up with a big bunch of money. A deposit or anything so I was renting this room and after a couple of weeks I think a room came up in the commune and they said did I want it and I said yes so that's where I lived and so I I lived this kind of double life where I would go down to the financial district in the morning and work in this restaurant and hang out with those people and go to bars and clubs but then at home I was you know making great vats of potato and leek soup for uh, 15 hippies and their children and going to kind of barefoot boogie and finding out how to make tofu edible. You know, because I was young, I was 20, which kind of in international years is about, you know, 15, I would say, an Irish 20 back then was young. (laughs) And so I was very kind of judgmental and conservative with a small C. So those hippies were so... Good for me, and really changed how how I viewed life in a way. I think I'd be. They they made me. I mean, I was still judgmental, but slightly less judgmental. I would say, and also made me understand. That we have more time than we think we do. There was time to kind of pursue an ambition or pursue a dream. It didn't have to come true in a kind of opportunity knocks way. Life could be a slow burn rather than a firework.
3: thinking of you as this young sheltered man who knew he was gay, going to the epicentre of kind of gay liberation in San Francisco. I wonder if it gave you a huge amount of confidence for the career that you would have and and how you would deal with, you know, the kind of the wild eccentricities that you put on some of your shows later, like at Channel 4.
2: I mean, I think certainly my uh, being comfortable with eccentricity and oddness, probably that was helped by being in San Francisco. Oddly, I had a girlfriend when I was in San Francisco. I, I bucked the trend <laughs> when I when I was there. You were
3: the counter-counterculture.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I exactly. I rebelled. Uh it was all too easy. Um so I had a girlfriend when I was there, and I think but equally I saw, you know, the gay community and 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 saw how easy it could be. I mean, bear in mind, this was 1984, so it was kind of AIDS had just kind of hit San Francisco. So there was a kind of a dark shadow over all of that, which is probably why I ended up with a girlfriend, rather than kind of, you know, going to some sort of hedonistic, uh, wild time in San Francisco. (laughs)
3: you did go to London you went to drama school and that's that sounds like you knew that performing was going to be your way tell me about the decision to go to drama school
2: well when I was in Ireland I mean that is what I wanted to do I wanted to perform but I had no idea how you did that there was no drama school in Ireland there was nothing so I thought journalism might be a thing but I didn't get into the journalism school up in Dublin so I just did an arts I was doing an arts degree and the idea was that that would turn into uh, some freelance writing and some journalism whatever and then it was the hippies who kind of said to me what do you want to do and I said well I'd like to be an actor they "Well, why aren't you doing that and and it was because I came from a background where you immediately saw the pitfalls and the problems. Those are the things you saw first. You immediately, you, you, that was instinctively, you went for the reasons why you couldn't do something. So, you know, there was no act, there was no work as an actor. How would you do it? There's no security, uh, all of those things. Whereas the hippies were just like, well, if that's what you do, you should do that. And it was such a kind of a, a turnaround of perspective and so I went, okay, I will. So when I left, I went straight to London and started applying for drama schools. And my, in my head, I thought, well, if I don't get into drama school, then that's a decision that's been made for me. But I have made, I tried. But I did get into drama school. And then you think, well, if I don't get an agent, then, that, but I did get an agent. And then you think, well, if I don't get a job, but I did get a job. But then, then it kind of all the wheels came off because uh, I, I I didn't really get jobs. I got a couple of jobs, but uh, I really wasn't working. And that's when I decided to start writing things for myself. And that life of a kind of a sort of cabaret, then I drifted into stand-up. It suited me better because, you know, you can pick up the phone. You can make things happen. You could hustle for work in a way that... You know, just being a, a a straight actor is, it's such a passive profession. And, and that kind of drove me crazy. You know, the constant checking your answering machine. You know, every payphone you passed, you'd, you know, you'd ring your answering machine and put in the code uh, to check that there wasn't a, me- a message from your agent about an audition. Of course, there never was. But it be- it became a sort of obsession. And it was, you know, it's that, uh that dating thing you know he's he's just not that into you um eventually i had to accept that the world of acting was just not that into me. So uh, I moved on.
3: Mm, well, I want to talk a bit more about the, the stand-up and the comedy, but just one other question about drama school. I read an interview where you talked about being mugged and actually stabbed. You were seriously injured um, walking home, I think, from, from drama school. And you said, in a way, being mugged liberated me. Could you explain what you mean about that incident?
2: Well... <sighs> I mean there's nothing good about being stabbed and you know and I it was very serious I think I lost over half my blood and it was all touch and go and everything but the 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 only upside was that one I lived so you know you're already you're just grateful you've lived and it gave you a perspective on on life that was just really useful you know I was going into third year at drama school and that's when you do the showcases and you do the plays that the agents and the casting directors are invited to. So, oh, the hysteria. The, you know, the casting would go up on the board and there'd be door slamming and crying and oh, I can't believe I did it, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there going, I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy. So it, it kind of, I think. It saved me from myself because I have a funny feeling I might have been one of those people doing the door slamming and the crying. It it was freeing in that it made you realise what was important and what you could sort of brush off and kind of go, you know what, this isn't the end of the world. There'll be another play. There'll be more casting.
3: Well, it's also fascinating because... Then, as you were saying, you know, you went to focus your career more on, on kind of comedy and performance and as a kind of persona of Graham Norton. And that's when I first saw you. So it's like I saw you at the Edinburgh Fringe with your show Charlie's Angels Go to Hell, which was inspired by your time living with the hippies in San Francisco. Um, and I just remember thinking, this man is amazing. And it was around the time that you got the role in Father Ted as well. Tell me about finding the persona of Graham Norton as a as a person because that's that's kind of the key wasn't it to your career
2: it was and i it's so odd now as an older man looking back at that younger man and thinking was that me and i think it was i think i'd built up that character when i worked in restaurants i you know or, or at or drama school uh quite arch quite camp quite brittle uh you know a big streak of cruelty in there and and I think once you get on stage, then you you put on that persona sort of like armor, you know, and you're laughing at yourself before anyone can laugh at you. And all of those kind of classic <laughs> tears of a clown tropes, they're all there. Um, and so I think that's what that was. Um, and then, of course, when I got on TV it wasn't just me. I wasn't just kind of creating that persona. There was a whole team creating the caricature kind of Graham Norton. You know, I had a stylist who was coming up with all these incredible, mad suits that I ha- was happy to wear. I mean, I loved them.
3: This was the, uh, the Channel 4 series that you did starting in yeah, '99. Yeah, so,
2: you know, but th- there were n- some of the... Cl- I looked, you know, nuts. and And also I had a producer, there were writers, and it... In the end, I sort of... It went too far for me. I kind of thought, you know, the... All the jokes were just about, kind of, you know, anal sex and blowjobs and things, and I just kind of thought, like this is beginning to feel uncomfortable, particularly because it was straight men who were writing these jokes and you know straight men who were producing the show, and I, I just it, yeah, I kind of started to kick back then, and 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 that's also I think to do with because I didn't, you know, I got the Channel Four show when I think I was. 35, 36, something like that. So by the time it finished, I was in my 40s. And it it took me a while to kind of figure out who I was as a 40-year-old. Because clearly I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the guy in the big suits running up and down the stairs, kind of waving dildos around. That just seemed really unseemly for (laughs) someone. For a a man over 40. Um, But yet I didn't quite know who I was. And I think it's taken me a a while. It took about kind of, I don't know, maybe it took 10 years, maybe. But in my 50s, I feel much more comfortable in my skin and kind of, I kind of, I feel like I get who I am now, um, whereas I didn't quite then.
3: I don't think it took you 10 years. I would say the transition from Channel 4 to your BBC One show, who not surprisingly poached you, was really interesting. And I'm fascinated by the use of the word unseemly, which is quite an old-fashioned word in a way. But for someone who was very much at the cutting edge, helping reshape the chat show, you had a strong sense of wanting, wanting to hit the right tone, that growing up was something to embrace rather than to deny.
2: But also it was to do with we had a different job to do. You know, at Channel 4, we had a a kind of a brief. We were the replacement for Eurotrash. So suddenly, it couldn't just be a chat show. It couldn't just be me interviewing people. It had to have all that over-the-top stuff. It needed to be risque and outrageous to to please that audience that we were inheriting. On BBC One, that's not your job. Your job is to provide a, a show that's, you know, sort of, appropriate for that bbc1 audience i mean even on bbc2 you can be a bit more uh out there but once we got to, to bbc1 and once we got to friday nights to bbc1 you know you you need to entertain that audience you, you're not there to frighten them you're not there to kind of shock them you want to please them and i don't feel it never felt like i was denying anything in the act or in myself or in the show. It's a bit like, you know, you're a different person if you go to the pub with your friends than if you have lunch with your grandparents. But you're still yourself. You're, you know, you're, you're just aware that I need, you know, the person my grandparents want to meet (laughs) isn't the guy who's down the pub with his mates. Um, And I think we all make those adjustments in, in life,
3: Well, you are now on series 28, I think, of the (laughs) Graham Norton show, which has been running since 2007. A huge success. Everyone wants to be on that show. And I wonder, with the benefit now, having really felt comfortable for some years in it, what is it, do you think, that's made the show and its format such a hit with audiences?
2: The most obvious thing is having all the guests on at the same time. Uh, having a couch, having conversation rather than interviews. I think an audience enjoys that, but also I think the guests enjoy it. Occasionally there's publicists who slightly bristle, you know, because they're there to represent their client, who is a star, who should not be on a sofa with other people. And it doesn't suit everybody. Some people are that person. So, you know, you see performers who, when other people are talking, all they're doing is looking at the monitor to check, themselves they're looking for their face to show up in the monitor there's no that you know someone else is talking it can't be interesting because it's not those words are not coming out of my mouth but there are very few of those people the vast majority of really great performers actors musicians writers they listen you know, they do those jobs because they are interested in other people. Yes, they have an ego and yes, they want to show off and they want to tell the funniest story. But equally, they want to hear someone else's story because that's that's what everyone feeds off is other people's stories.
3: I was really struck when you won the National Television Award in 2017, for a sort of special recognition for your career. They got all these celebrities to talk about how much they loved coming on your show. You know, Dolly Parton, Judy Dench. And Matt Damon, I think it was, who said he'd never had as much fun anywhere else.
2: By the way, this is the best time I've ever had on a talk show. Oh, yes, you
3: what, what is it, you think, that bonds them? Because it's about you. It's more than just having everyone on at the same time.
2: It makes you a bit sad for Matt Damon. but uh... <laughs> No, don't be modest. <laughs> how bad is his life? <laughs> Um, I I think they enjoy being with other performers because it's it's sort of like being on set. You know, actors enjoy actors. They like being around each other uh, because they do this weird job. And also, actors are very good at instant immediacy or instant intimacy, rather. Um, you know, when I was an actor, I remember that. You know, you'd go into a rehearsal room and these people became really good friends, incredibly quickly. And then those friendships burnt bright. And then the minute the job was over, yeah, you might call them, you might see them for a drink, but it was always a bit awkward. It was like, oh, all we now have in common is that we used to be friends. Whatever it was is gone. And so I think actors are good at at sort of very instant bonding. Um, And I think that's one of the things they like about the show. I try not to annoy them. I feel like, you know, the show isn't news night. I'm never going to ask a question. I mean, if I ask a question that makes them uncomfortable, I will have done it by accident. I'm not out to, you know, get to the truth. I don't want to kind of, you know, lift the lid on their relationship or, you know, revisit some horror. That's just, it's a chat show. That's all it is. It's an entertainment show. And I think with those sorts of stars they're so media trained they're so guarded that actually the way to get to know them best is to see how they react to other people to see what makes them laugh what interests them what sparks a story in them you without without kind of probing or kind of you know poking them with a stick they do reveal themselves
3: could i trouble you i don't know if you could do this to say what your favorite guests or moments on the show have been?
2: Uh, well, I mean, the, the, that Matt Damon show you talk about was a really special one because it was Bill Murray and Hugh Bonneville and the three of them obviously were having a great time. I think they'd done a press junket in the afternoon. Possibly a drink was taken. And that was an odd show because normally, you know, the conversation is very produced and we, we know exactly what's going to be happening. But someone else in that movie who now I can't even remember, pulled out, I think, the night before. They were supposed to be coming on uh, with Matt Damon and Hugh Bonneville. And so we were told, look, we don't know. We're going to ask Bill Murray, but we'll ask him after the premiere or something. We'll ask at the last minute, we'll ask him if he wants to go on the show. So we had sort of all these various scripts uh, you know, arrange so a show with Bill Murray, without Bill Murray, with someone else who also might have replaced the missing person. So it was very unprepared. And then Bill Murray at the last minute said, "Yeah, sure, why not? I'm having a nice time. I'll go on with Matt and and Hugh." And he was, you know, terrific. He was he was great. But it, I suppose, I enjoyed it so much because I really was an audience member on that night. I had very little work to do because. I didn't do very much on my cards because I didn't know you were coming. You know, but then you were going to bed cake. So I was just sat in my chair watching these three men have fun and just really kind of enjoy each other.
3: Well, it's also the the, the maturity and the confidence to be able to just go with the the spontaneity. You've also been able to convince big celebrities to do quite outlandish things. So an example is Olivia Colman roaring like a lion. I'm going to give you a lion.
2: So you need a pint glass for yeah. this. Okay, so do you need to explain what you're going to do first? No, I don't think so. No? Okay. <laughs> okay, this is self-explanatory. It's Olivia Colman doing a lion. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know, you once so I think Ollie Mers and Mila is the actress, on a sofa, and brought up the fact that he'd once talked about if you could have kids with anyone, it would be with, with her, um, if it was any celebrity.
2: Someone tweeted you uh, this question: If you could have kids with any celeb, oh no, who would you <laughs> have them with? <laughs> I obviously never thought in my wildest dreams I'd actually meet her. So, <laughs> I this not? is so flattering. It's nice.
3: How I? do you build up to? picking you know, the, those kind of moments. They're so unexpected for the audience. And I, I guess, to some extent, they're unexpected for the, the guests. They're not, they're not tipped off about this stuff, are they?
2: Well, sometimes they are. I mean, so, you know, Olivia Coleman, Roaring a Lion, it was a New Year's Eve show, so everyone had to do a party piece. And also, I think you you know who can take it, who's got, you know. So, teasing Ollie Murs about a stupid tweet he sent... Not never thinking i'm going to be sat on a sofa with this woman, you know that actually Ollie's going to be fine and you can you can tease him and it won't be weird or uncomfortable because that's what you don't want to do you know when you so like we show Ryan Reynolds some picture some stuff of him as a young performer or Justin Timberlake as a young performer, and you you want to dip into it and you want to get your laugh, but you don't want to show so much that they're sort of They're mortified by it. It's judging those things. It's judging how far, you know, because everyone has a sense of humour failure line. (laughs) At some point, they'll kind of go, I'm not enjoying this anymore. It was teasing. Now it feels like torture. How often has
3: that happened, though? It's happened
2: a couple of times. Not very often. It's only happened two or three times. And normally by accident, where uh, it's someone who doesn't normally work on the show. So... They they're not listening when I'm kind of going when I'm clearly I'm saying okay I think we've seen enough of that they think oh well no because that bit of tape is this length and my job is to play all of it (laughs) you're like no your job isn't to play all of it please stop so it's when it's sort of it's it's gone wrong when we've gone wrong.
3: What's interesting is the, the novel writing, which has really become a big part of your life. You know, you, you've written your fourth and home stretch about the impact of a group of on a, on a group of teenagers of a fatal car crash and the homophobia and the sexual repression of 80s Ireland. You know, it's dark subjects that you tackle in that book, even if it's a warm hearted book. How different is the writing voice? Are you conscious of having a very different writing voice?
2: Well, initially it was deliberate. And I think That wasn't what the publishers thought. I think, you know, they thought they were going to get a comic novel or, you know, a sort of camp silly novel. And I didn't want to do that because I wanted to kind of remove myself from the book so a reader could just, you know, enjoy a story without being aware of who wrote it. And that's difficult when you're kind of bloke off the telly who's written a book. But that was my aim. The voice... You know, initially, I think I was very self-conscious writing that first book. I was second-guessing readers all the time. You just feel like people will read it differently or judge it differently because I've, you know, had the you know, temerity to write this thing. So I think by now I've kind of grown in confidence and have more sense of what I can achieve, what I can convey in in the novels. And I, I look forward to writing more because I kind of, you know, it's uh, it's it's like any muscle, you know, the more you do it, hopefully, the better you get.
3: One of the other voices you have, which I think to some extent may be fed into your novel writing, because you write so well about dilemmas, is your work as an agony uncle. And you both wrote um, a really entertaining but serious column in the Saturday Telegraph for, um, I think, 12, 12 years. And of course, you still do kind of agony uncle stuff on your Radio 2 show. Dear Graham and Maria, my husband's drink problem has finally run me down. We're in our 60s and have been married for nearly 40 years. I want my lovely husband back. What should I do? That's from Miriam in Cardiff.
2: So the person drinking, they at least are making choices for themselves. They're thinking, I want to be drunk now, therefore I'm going to get drunk. Whereas the Miriams of this world are in a terrible position because... You know, as she, as she says, she wants her lovely husband back.
3: The confidence to do that voice and to somehow find the right balance, its it really is striking. How come you have that? How did you find it?
2: No idea, but it is my dream job. I mean, my dream job would be doing a radio show in the middle of the night where you go next caller and come on and people tell you their problems. And then, you know, you you talk it through and then other insomniacs ring up with advice for the other person and i always imagine i've got a dog in the studio with me asleep onto the desk Uh, that would be my dream job so when the telegraph thing came along it's a bit like the novels i think what they thought they were going to get was a very jokey glib column about you know noisy neighbors or uh, a horrible christmas gift what should i do with it And actually it turned serious very quickly and there were a couple of pivotal moments where people wrote letters and really moving letters, heartbreaking letters that I replied to, and then it resonated with the the readers. And so it, it, there was kind of a dialogue. We we did get that thing that I'm talking about in the middle of the night. You know, the, there was the problem. I responded. And then these all these other people responded, kind of a yes, I'm a long-term carer. Or I've been in that situation. Or, you know, I too have a, some sort of terminal condition. I certainly didn't expect that. But I was comfortable with it. I think in a way I'd be less comfortable on TV or radio doing those things because I think it's probably more jarring to have kind of, you know, shiny Graham Norton in a suit dealing with those things. Whereas when it's written, you've got time to consider and you're not just, you know, because TV and radio, it's you just blurt out the first thing that comes out of your head. You know, it's, it's all about speed of response and, you know, my speed of response is normally to try and get a laugh. So in the novels and in that column when I was doing it, um, I appreciated having time to consider and get the tone, you know, right and not be sort of glib or dismissive. Do you have any regrets? Um, I think regrets are kind of pointless. I think you've got to make your peace with everything you've done – there's some jokes that we wish we hadn't told over the years. I so when I talk about this, I say we, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not, if I'm going down if I'm going down and taking producers and writers with me, there there's some jokes that I sort of you know in an ideal world we wouldn't have done, but we did, and and you apologized
3: I, as well, didn't you? And I and, and I, I, I apologize
2: for those things and I'm sorry for them, but I but I can't regret them. I think you've got to kind of. You've, you've got to move on and hopefully learn from those things. And I think, in a way, we've got to do that with everybody. You've got to hope that whatever anybody's doing, whatever anybody was... You hope the trajectory of people's lives is that they become better people, kinder people, more empathetic. Presumably that's the plan for all of us, that, you know, your life informs you and informs the way you live as you get older. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of forgiving of my, my younger self.
3: I was watching an an interview from, I think, '99 when Terry Wogan came on your show, and I was really struck by how much he admired you. You clearly admired him. And he also had a very significant career across radio and television in Britain with his Irish background. I wonder, looking at your career so far and thinking about Terry Wogan as well, what lessons you think you've learnt from him and what drives you now?
2: What drives me now? Actually, oddly, in a kind of, I was going to say a post-COVID world, but of course we're... <laughs> we're never <laughs> Sorry, living. listeners. Sorry, listeners. I don't know when this is going out, but it's not a post-COVID world. But uh, certainly this, uh, this opportunity to kind of pause has made me think, oh, actually, work is great. How lucky am I that somebody wants me to be somewhere at a time and they're going to pay me to do it? Um, so I think in a way, what, what drives me now is just a gratitude that I have a gig, that I have gigs, um, and so it would be churlish uh, not to do them and churlish to complain. Terry kind of paved the way for lots of people. And I think Terry kind of invented modern presenting, that idea of, you know, looking relaxed, looking like you're having a nice time. You know, a lot of presenters before Terry were very, you know, straight laced, formal you know, they might smile, but that would be it. Whereas Terry, you always imagine Terry was just having a nice time. He was, you know, and uh, there was that carelessness to what he did that made you as a viewer kind of relax, like you were just in, in safe hands. And I think all of us probably aspire to that level of of comfort on screen or on the airwaves. up Do you know I haven't been awake or up and about this early since God was a boy. The crocodiles are still on the streets. I think his voice was... I mean, I'm so glad they changed the name of Western House, where Radio 2 is, to Wogan House, because it is Wogan House. The entire tone of that radio station comes from him. That kind of gentle, relaxed, warm... Uh, speaking voice he had, the that kind of extraordinary relationship he had with the listeners. Uh, that is That has sort of become the entire station. And I think Radio 2 is his legacy.
3: I have to end it with you because, you know, you talked about how you feel in the current times your show is, is a great gig to have. But equally, you must be aware how much people need the joy of shows like yours. And... And and I'm I'm fascinated by your view on the importance of of fun when we're going through such grim time.
2: As a viewer, I am so happy to see things like Strictly and I'm a Celebrity back on TV because they're just, there's a familiarity to them, which is joyous. But also they are, they are funny and diverting and they take you out of this. And I think our show, now that we're back in the studio, I think the, the lockdown shows we did in the bedroom were just you know, the BBC wanted them and we were happy to do them because we had a whole team of people in place who thought they were going to work. So we were able to keep those people employed and that was important. But as a viewer, I think they weren't very satisfying. But actually, the lockdown shows in the studio where we're socially distanced and now there isn't an audience, I think they are still a good watch. And I, th- you know, certainly the reaction I'm getting from, from viewers is people are really enjoying them and people are liking them back. And, and I think the guests are, are You know, they're enjoying kind of emerging, blinking into the light from their houses. I don't know, it's a kind of a a, a, almost a celebratory atmosphere in the studio, even though we are still going through such dark times.
3: Absolutely. Graham Norton, thank you so much for coming on How I Found My Voice.
2: Okay, and if we discover none of this recorded, I promise I'll come back again.
3: Oh, God, that's too generous of you.
2: No, no, because honestly, I have no... Real confidence that this has happened.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligent Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to IntelligentSquared.com. This event was originally produced by head of podcasts, Faraj Asat. And I'm your host, producer Catherine Hughes.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.